that grabs your heart? What is it that grabs your heart? You can ask, what is your life project? What do you make your life about? I want you to be thinking about what would your answer to these questions be? What are those things that give your life that uniqueness? Where if somebody new meets you, they've not really understood who you are unless they know this about you. Or unless they know that this is your thing, as it were. What are those things that people come to you for, for advice or help? What are you the best at? What things in your life have that tendency to become all-encompassing? What are the things that you feel disappointed by if you don't quite get enough time to put into them? Time to spend on them? What are those things which compete for highest priority in our weekly schedules? What is it that grabs your heart? Now, there's a range of different options for different people. So it might be, for example, a sport or an exercise. You might be really into your fitness. You might be really into your football. Maybe playing it or maybe just watching it and following it. It might be a hobby, a craft, a gardening, art, some other sort of thing like this. You spend time... Uh, Practicing or, or doing this, this activity. You pour money into getting the right materials. You, perhaps you're part of a club. You work together and help one another on it. Perhaps the answer is your career. It's your job. The thing you do nine to five. On a similar line, it might be your, your calling as a parent or as a grandparent. Those things can become defining for us. It might even be your ministry, your God-given responsibilities in the church. What is, it that, what is it that defines you? What is it that grabs your heart? Because this evening, what I want to do is I want to question the ultimate value of those things. I want to question if those things are really all that they often make out to be. I want to help you recognise that things, certain things seem so important at certain times in our life. And we've got this tendency to plough all our resources, all our effort into those things because they seem to offer so many riches, so many promises. They seem to offer a certain sense of meaning or purpose. They seem to offer perhaps identity with a group of other people. They seem to offer a certain satisfaction of mind in using your abilities and your strengths. Perhaps that's where you're looking for your joy in the day-to-day. Perhaps that's where you're finding happiness, as it were. Perhaps that's where you find superiority or freedom or, or structure or whatever else it might be. But I want to question the ultimate value of those things tonight by showing you how actually... Those things fall short, even of the promises that they often make to us. Now, I'm not just talking here about the things we enjoy. The the intention isn't for you to walk out the doors at the back and say, okay, that's it, no more enjoyment for a week. Okay, that's not what I'm aiming to do. So, I'm going to give you my personal example, my personal answers to these questions. So, there are many things which I enjoy. I could point to good food. I like uh, new food great, I love it. Live music, really enjoy it. Doing a bit of DIY at home, I enjoy those things. 
But those things don't capture my heart. Not like, for me, the answer would be cycling. Cycling is my, my sport, my thing that I love doing. Okay. It's what captures me. It's what grabs me. It's what pulls and vies for my attention and my time and my money and my efforts. Because cycling makes me promises. Cycling says, here is health and strength. Do you know, there's no amount of cycling, in my mind, that is too small. Any amount of cycling is miles in the bank. Going to the shops, going up the road, cycling to up, up to here. Any amount of cycling is worth doing, in my mind. There's no amount that's too small. It makes this promise of health and strength. It makes a promise of superiority. Cycling can make me better than other people. It makes me stronger, it makes me faster, it makes me fitter. There's a reason I don't use the cycle paths on Epinal Way. Because it's full of other cyclists who are far too slow and slow me up. It's, it's, it's real painful to write these things because I spend all my time convincing myself that, that I don't believe these things. And yet when I assess myself honestly, these, this is what cycling is promising me. This is what cycling offers. And my behaviour reflects that. So I cycle on the road because I'm stronger. I'm better than others. I'm not as inferior as those people. Cycling offers me identity and a camaraderie with others. If you're a cyclist, you'll know that when you're cycling along and you see someone else on the other side of the road on a bike, you've never even seen them in your life. And yet you give them a little wave because they're also on a bike just like you. You're part of a group. You're together. There's identity and camaraderie there. There is freedom in cycling. Freedom from the petrol pumps and the the, the boxes and the cars that we bind ourselves to. I'm faster getting from here to my home than I am in the car. There's freedom there. There is positive self-image and mental resilience. Do you know which way the wind blows when you get on a bike? Straight in your face. And if you spend all your time cycling into the wind, pushing against something that's resisting you, I like to think it gives me a certain mental resilience that can carry over to other situations in my life. Now, you've all had a good chuckle at me there. okay? But I want you to think, what are those, what are those things in your life that grab your heart in the same way? What are those things that make you similar promises? That give you those promises of health or strength or well-being or superiority or whatever else it might be? How many books have you got on your bookshelf that you've never read? Is that your thing? How many outfits have you got that you've never worn because fashion is your thing? How many hours of unpaid overtime have you done because your career is your goal? What is it that causes you to struggle to accept other people if they don't hold the same opinion as you on these things? What is it that you think is so important for getting that right first impression when you meet another person? These are the sort of questions that will help you identify those things that are grabbing for your heart, that are vying for your efforts and your emotions and all that you are. Can you identify, whether you're a Christian or not, those things that take hold of your heart? Well, I'll leave you to think about that for a few moments. But the Philippian Christians were facing similar temptations. Here in the book of Philippians, we've got a letter written to what seemed to be genuine Christians. They, they, have, they have found Christ. They have put their trust in him. 
They have been given new life. And their identity is in Christ. Their purpose for life is in Christ. It's in the book of Philippians that we took that verse that we've been doing the children's talks. For me to live is Christ. Their purpose in life is Christ. Paul gives that verse and expects them to do the same. Their purpose is to live for Christ. They have these uh, promises of, of well-being and the hope to face adversity. So the Philippians, we would say, are genuine Christians. And yet there was a false teaching coming into the church. There was false teaching slipping in. And it's a little bit hard to determine exactly what this false teaching is, but, but we, can, we can pick up the general gist. You see, these false teachers are generally teaching that, you know, you need circumcision. You need to obey these food laws that God has given in the Old Testament. You need to become like an Old Testament Jew, really, if you are going to have God's salvation. And so chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, those who practice and who get you to practice circumcision, for example. Now, this teaching that the false teachers are bringing in, I suspect it wasn't done very overtly. It wouldn't have been very easy to spot. They weren't walking in through the front doors and saying, right guys, I've got a new type of Christianity for you to follow. You need to stop following that Jesus malarkey and start following these laws instead. That's probably not what was going on. Now, of course, this is... um, I'm working this out by implication. We've not got a statement of what or how these people were teaching. But consider this that these false teachers seem to be within the church. They seem to be accepted within the church in many places. And Paul's having to write and warn churches against their teaching. So it's obviously not a teaching that is very contradictory to the teaching that's already going on in the churches. Similarly, if you read Galatians, you find that even the Apostle Peter seems to be dragged along by this sort of Judaizing this teaching about following the Old Testament laws. And so you can imagine, if you're going to grasp an apostle with this false teaching, it's got to be pretty subtle. And it's got to be gently, gently done. And so you can imagine these false teachers coming into the churches and saying something like this. Look, we're really glad that you are Christians. We're really glad you've got this faith in Jesus. Keep your faith. It's so important. But just consider this. You call yourself one of the people of God, right? Well, who have the people of God been throughout all of history? It's the Jews, right? And if you want to be one of the people of God, then why don't you become like one of these Jews? Why don't you become like one of us? You can see how they weave themselves in to the congregation and into their beliefs in a much more subtle manner. They're not saying, get rid of Jesus and follow this. They're saying instead, Add this to what you already believe. Why would you want to add these things to what you already believe? Ah, well, they say, there's... I mean, if you really want to show that you're serious about following Christ, if you really want to show that you're serious about being one of God's people, then how are you going to do that in your life? Why don't you start following God's laws that he's written down? Why don't you become like one of us? And actually, there's, there's safety and there's security if you become one of us. Because, you see, the world out there, they, they recognise Jews. They don't recognise Christians. You're all sort of new and different and awkward. They reject Christianity. But if you become like a Jew, 
well, that will open loads of doors for you. It will mean that you're not shut off by people. It will help you reach more of the world. There's greater respect here. There's more acceptance. There's less persecution. There's more safety. It makes sense, really, doesn't it, to start following these laws with us. There's less persecution. There's greater respectability. And there's even a sense of righteousness, salvation. How are you going to know if you're really following God's laws? How how are you going to know if you're really pleasing to God? Sorry, Only by following his laws, surely. Here is righteousness then. Here is how you can be right with God, they might have said, by following these laws. Now that's not so different, really, from the promises that we are facing today from those things that we were considering earlier. When you think about those things that seek to try and grab our hearts, how else are they grabbing our hearts if they're not doing it by making us similar promises? Aren't those things grabbing our hearts by saying, look, here is a place where you can have less persecution. You can have greater respect from the world around you. You can be not so different from the people that you mix with at work if you become like one of these, if you follow me. Those things that grab our hearts can say, look, there's more confidence here. There's more safety. There's empowerment. There's more joy here. Those things that try and grab our hearts can even, in a sense, say, here is salvation. Not salvation in the traditional sense that we might think of, but let's say salvation in the sense of offering true satisfaction. Offering real meaning to your life. Avoiding you having to waste your life on some fruitless effort. Salvation in the sense of here's the greatest happiness. Here's the best version of you. These things don't openly deny the gospel so often. You can still have your faith, they say. This is to sort of sit alongside your Christian faith. This is to reach those places of your life that your faith in Jesus doesn't reach or doesn't have an impact on. This is to go alongside what you already believe. But Paul sees straight through these promises, these offers. Paul says, watch out. Don't put your confidence in the fleshly or worldly things and the promises that they offer. Don't do it. I've tried it already. Verse 4, look, if anybody else has reasons to, to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I've been there. I've had all that they offer. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's just what they want, isn't it? Not like you, who are having to be circumcised as adults. I was circumcised as a baby. You might become an Israelite, but what about me? I was born of the people of Israel. Not just any old tribe. I was born in Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to keeping the law, nobody will do better than I ever did. I was a Pharisee. What about my zeal for God? My love for him, my devotion to him. I went around persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless, Paul says. Paul had every reason to put confidence in the flesh. In terms of sports, as it were, he was the top of his game. Semi-pro. In terms of uh, hobbies, he was the guy with the the tutorial blog online. Monetized. 
In terms of travel, he was the Instagram influencer. In terms of career, he was the CEO, the entrepreneur. In terms of ministry, he was the celebrity star of souloftarsusministries.com. He'd made it to the top. He had all that these promises could ever make him. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He was everything that these false teachers were trying to get him to be. And he says, verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Why loss? Why loss, Paul? What's such a loss about being circumcised? What's such a loss about being a Jew, Paul? Is it wrong to be a Jew? Is it wrong to follow God's law? Why do you consider it loss? Verse 8, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's not because those things are in themselves sinful or worthless. It's because when you compare them to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, they're empty. They deliver nothing. They are worthless. Because Christ offers all. And when you assess what these other things offer in relation, they become nothing. In fact, what they become is a hindrance to me achieving what Christ offers. So I consider them a loss. To each of us here today, you will be tempted to chase after something other than Christ. You'll be tempted to give your heart, your life, your efforts, your money, your time to something other than Christ Jesus. Now those things might not be sinful. They might not be damaging. They might not be wrong in and of themselves. But have you allowed them to become your foundation of confidence, your foundation for salvation? Have they grabbed hold of your heart? Have they taken the place that Jesus should occupy? And if you have, then you need to see that in comparison to what Christ offers you, they can offer you nothing of what he offers. And so the only right assessment of those things is that, at the end of the day, they are a loss. They are a distraction. They are a hindrance. So what's the remedy then? What does Paul say is his remedy? Well, he goes on. Verse 8. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I set those things aside in order to have Christ. I want to take hold of him. I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. Not, not setting myself up on the confidence that I have built myself. I want this righteousness that God gives. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. To know him will mean knowing the power of his resurrection. It will mean knowing the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. To know Christ gives two important things. To know Christ gives the power of resurrection. And to know Christ brings us into fellowship with him as we share in our sufferings. First, the power of his resurrection. What's this all about? Well, in its most basic sense, this is the promise of our resurrection. That death is no longer the enemy for those who are found in Christ. It's what we're thinking about this morning. The sting of death has been removed. Its victory has been wrenched from its grip. Death still bites. Death will still get us. 
But it has no hold over us. Why? Because it had no hold over Christ. Christ has defeated death. And so we too will rise from the dead. Because Christ has been raised, we will be raised. Now compare that to any of those other pursuits that you were thinking about earlier. Compare that to any of those other things that vie for your heart and your attention. They make promises of of hope and of happiness and of security and health and knowledge and, and whatever else it might be. They make all sorts of promises. But their promises, even if they managed to deliver, would last for a season, a life. And that's it. They can't deliver you anything after death. We're accustomed to thinking about that with money, for example. You know, we know the phrase, you can't take it with you. We're ready to think about how we must use our money wisely and carefully and not hold it too tightly. But what about our pristine homes? What about our sporting achievements? What about our health? What about our art? Whatever else it might be. Are we thinking in that way about them? You can't take it with you. It's going to die with us. Only Christ offers a promise of resurrection from the dead. Only Christ offers this hope of new life. And what will that new life be like? Well, the Bible describes it as primarily a life free from sin. It'll be a life free from sin. We'll be given new hearts in that life that instead of rejecting God and turning from him, will be caused to seek God and to love him and to want to know him more. That resurrection life will be a life lived in the presence of God. It'll be a life lived basking in the glory of God. It'll be a life feeding off the one who is life itself. It'll be a life where we're able to live as we were designed. It'll be a life where, not characterised by selfishness or proud ambition, but it'll be a life of God-honouring, worship-filled fullness of life that builds up instead of breaks down. It'll build up those around us. It'll build up even the creation that we are set in. It'll be a life lived in the presence of God who is all goodness and from whom all goodness springs. But what's amazing about the, the New Testament record is that it's saying that resurrection life that you're hoping for, if you're a Christian, that resurrection life that Jesus offers isn't just for the future. It's not just way off down there in the timeline somewhere. That resurrection life can be experienced now. That resurrection life is, for those who know Christ, it's available today. Romans 8, for example, describes the way a Christian receives the Spirit coming to dwell in our hearts to change us. And one of the names it gives to the Spirit, what we sometimes call the Holy Spirit, is it calls him the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in your heart. You could say the Spirit of resurrection lives in your heart if you're a Christian. And that Spirit of resurrection lives in us now to establish the pattern of the life that we will one day have. And so the effects that it brings are are, are numerous. Think of, for example, the, the effect of joy that the Spirit brings. 
Now you might say, no, no, no. My, my hobbies bring me joy. My children bring me joy. My sports bring me joy. I get joy from other places. I don't need that spirit joy. But you've misunderstood. The joy that your hobbies and your crafts and your garden and whatever else brings, those hobbies are, that joy is it's like a distraction. It's like a, a fleeting joy that lasts for a time and then disappears. It's a joy that, that only lasts as long as you're engaged in whatever you're doing. That just turns you off from the worries and the difficulties of life. Whereas the joy that the Spirit brings is stable. It's lasting. It's sure. It can't be shaken. It doesn't depend upon circumstances that you face. It depends upon your status as a child of God, brought into his family and under his care. The Spirit brings peace. That Spirit of resurrection brings peace. It gives you a taste of the peace that you will one day enjoy fully. It gives you a taste today. Now you might say, no, I can get peace from my career. Once I've paid off my mortgage, once I've paid off the car, I'll have peace. I won't need to worry. That peace that you're searching for, that financial security that you hope will bring peace is so fickle. Proverbs tells you, you just just cast a glance at your riches and they'll sprout wings and fly off. Who has control of of your job in, in a month's time, in three months' time, in a year's time? Who has control of the company that you work for still being even in existence? It's not you, is it? It's in someone else's hands. You've not got half as much control as you like to kid yourself that you have. The peace that we might search for in financial security is fickle and fleeting. And yet the peace of knowing your sins forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is lasting and it is certain. The peace of knowing the shame and guilt that you have for your sins being washed away can never be taken away. There is a great peace from knowing that God is working all things for your good. The spirit of resurrection also brings self-control. You might say, no, I, I, I get self-control. You should see my diet plan. I'm a vegan. I'm going for it, right? Self-control, I know all about it. Again, the self-control that you're searching for there, the structure, the discipline, the order that you might think you've found is nothing compared to what Christ offers. The self-control that you've set up for you there works by restriction, by binding, by cutting off, by hemming in. The self-control that Christ brings works from inside out. It works by changing your heart, by changing your desires, by changing what you love. And so the self-control is not restrictive and binding like those diet plans or the training regimes or the religious traditions. The self-control that the Spirit brings is is working from our hearts. It's teaching us how to say no to ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives. For the Christian, to know the power of the resurrection, like Paul seeks to know, is to know the Spirit at work in us. So that even today, we can experience the pattern of the life that we will one day enjoy. Our life of joy, peace, self-control, freedom, relationship with God, and many other things besides.
And the area of life in which this resurrection power shows itself perhaps most clearly is the area of suffering. That's perhaps when it's most clearly seen. And Paul links the resurrection power with Christ's sufferings. They go hand in hand. You can't, you can't separate one from the other. Just like Christ's death would have achieved nothing if he didn't also rise. And also, well, it wouldn't make sense for Christ to rise unless he had first died. The two go together, hand in hand. And Paul says, if you're going to know something of the resurrection power of Christ, you've got to also be ready to suffer with Christ until that resurrection comes. This is what verse 11 is all about. I want to become like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That somehow is not a sense of uncertainty, it's a sense of humility. And and, and this issue of our, our lives being lives marked by suffering is no sort of niche topic. I've not just pulled out this obscure verse from, from one little letter in the New Testament and, and tried to fit it to make this, this huge pattern that we all ought to follow. This is the regular teaching of the New Testament. The Christian life is one of suffering. Romans 8, again, that favourite chapter of so many Christians, talks about the way we, um, we need to be ready to suffer with Christ if we also are going to want to reign with him in glory. 1 Peter talks about how suffering has been uh, prepared for you. It's the pattern. You shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes or persecution comes. It's the pattern of the Christian life. Don't be surprised. Now think about how those other things that that try and grab our hearts, that try and and, uh, capture our hearts, how do they respond in the face of suffering? Because you see, those things that try and grab our hearts, they work by making promises that try and relieve suffering. So sports, for example, wants to make you healthy, fitter, faster, stronger, better. And so when suffering comes, whether that's through injury or illness or whatever else, that's a knockback. You're, 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 you're hindered in trying to achieve your goals. You're not going to get the promises that that sport is offering. You might take on a hobby, for example, to keep life enjoyable, to keep life joyful, to keep you happy. But when real trouble comes, when grief comes, that joy, that happiness, that enjoyment seems so trivial. What is the happiness of a garden when you've lost your spouse? Some might take pride in their houses or their gardens, make themselves comfortable, make themselves a nice, comfortable house to live in. Yeah, we can be very comfortable in our house. But I don't know of anybody who's ever been comforted by a nice, big, comfy sofa in a spacious living room. Some might have glittering careers that offer all the sorts of security and happiness that the world could want. And yet, as we were hearing this morning, all the money in the world couldn't buy a cure for cancer. And some parents might find their identity, their their longings, their desires, are all placed on their children. The success of their children is the measure of their own success and happiness. If my children succeed, then I will succeed. But when difficulty or depression or life crisis comes, 
whatever it might be, those children are unable to support the weight of burden that that parent will be placing on their shoulders. And so as the child suffers and and languishes under that burden, so the parent's own hopes are dashed and lost. And the thing spirals down ever deeper. Whatever it is that you are using to define the meaning of your life or the purpose of your life, wherever you're placing your hope outside of Christ, whatever basis you might have for confidence, it will all come crashing down in the face of suffering or grief or trouble. Now, granted, you might find a way to pick yourself up and carry on. But I would wager that in hindsight, you'll find that you managed to do that in spite of those things that you once trusted, not because of those things that you once trusted. Now, contrast that to knowing Christ. Contrast that, that, that emptiness of those things that vie for our attention with the fullness of knowing Christ. We've said to know Christ is directly linked to your suffering for him. And so that means that when suffering does come as a Christian, it's not a hindrance from your ultimate goal. It's not a hindrance from what you're trying to achieve. In fact, suffering then becomes a help to achieving what you're aiming for. It becomes a help to achieving your goals. Suffering still hurts. It still damages. We still grieve. But it doesn't have the destroying power that it would if we were without Christ. In fact, it comes for our benefit. So whether it's grief, whether it's poor health, whether it's financial ruin, whether it's family breakdown or marriage difficulties, whether it's mental health issues, whatever, whatever issue it might be, persecution. If our goal in life is a sport or a hobby or a career or a ministry, then all of those things, all those sufferings are a huge setback. They are a hindrance to achieving our goals. But if our goal in life is to know Christ and to take hold of him, then whatever suffering comes, as painful as it might be, those sufferings become an opportunity to know Christ better. They become an opportunity to be more conformed to the pattern of his life. And they become an opportunity to display his resurrection power at work in us. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians says, look, we we have been afflicted, we have been afflicted in every way but we were not crushed because my goal is to know Christ better and these afflictions have been to strengthen my faith. Paul says, I've been perplexed in every way but I've not been driven to despair because these things that perplex me that I don't understand that I just can't get my head around that I don't know why it's happened especially to me they don't lead me to despair they lead me to trust God. I have been persecuted, Paul says, but I've not been forsaken because my persecutions help me draw closer to the Christ for whom I am persecuted. I have been struck down, Paul says, but I've not been destroyed because death has lost its sting. My hope is in Christ. Paul says, we're always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus 
We're suffering for him. We're suffering with him. We're always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. That resurrection power is revealed as we suffer for Christ. Do you see now why Paul says everything is loss compared to knowing Christ? Not that everything is sinful, not that everything is damaging, but everything is a loss compared to knowing Christ. So what is your life goal? What is it that drives you? What is it that you are seeking? Won't you make it this one thing? To know Christ more deeply. To know him more closely. To know the power of his resurrection. And to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There's no more stable a foundation for your life than that. There's nowhere else that these promises can be delivered except in the person of Jesus. Would you put your trust in him? And if you are a Christian, if you have given your life to him, if you are seeking to be found in him, then watch out. It's no trouble to say these things again. And it's a safeguard for you. Don't you see how easily things can grab hold of our hearts and drag us away from the Christ that we love? Did you notice the remedy that Paul gives? Uh, The imperative on which this whole chapter rests down there in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Meditate upon him. Remind yourself of him. Realize just what it is that you have in the Lord Jesus. And make it your aim to be found in him. That will be the theme of our last hymn. All I once held dear.